Well, then take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis 3. I want to begin in Genesis 3 this morning and review from where we left off a couple weeks ago. Of course, last week was Easter, and so we weren't looking in our Genesis exposition. But I want to review a little bit of where we were a couple weeks ago and then launch into this morning's text. You may have noticed that on the back of your bulletin that there's a similar outline to what we had a couple of weeks ago. There's just a couple of additions at the very bottom of the outline that I want to think about. Specifically, I want to continue thinking about the impact of the fall. When the fall happened, Adam sins, what's the fallout? What's the impact of this thing? And we saw two the last time we were together in Genesis, and we're going to look at two more specifically this week. Paradise is in peril. There's a huge issue right now in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. It is beginning to have severe issues. Things are starting to crumble. You remember that Adam and Eve had been in the Garden for a limited amount of time. The Bible doesn't tell us how long that they were in the Garden before the serpent comes and tempts Eve. We have no idea. We could probably say that she hasn't had a child yet, so it's been less than nine months. But at the very least, it would have been just a few days. We're not told exactly the time, but we just are told that it happens. We saw this scenario unfold for us where the inciter, Satan, right? He incites, he's going after somebody. Specifically, he's going after Eve. And he begins to have this conversation with Eve. Now, as the conversation begins, what does Satan do? He begins throwing all kinds of doubt, doesn't he? He's throwing all kinds of doubt toward Eve. When, when he asks the question like, did God really say? God really say? And one of the applications that we had looked at with that is that oftentimes we're having that conversation in our own minds, aren't we? In regard to what we're supposed to do, when we're supposed to do it, how we're supposed to do it, we start thinking to ourselves, well, did God really say that I need to do that? Did God really say how that should be done and so forth? And that question pops up in our minds all the time. But there's something else that he says to Eve. And he says to her, you will not surely die. So he's, he's subtly coming after Eve. He's craftily coming after her. And he gets her, doesn't he? He gets Eve to bite the fruit. Eve then takes the fruit that she bit and she hands it to her husband, Adam, and he eats it. And suddenly, everything that was beautiful and lovely is now ruined. Everything within the Garden of Eden is suddenly in flames. Not actual physical flames, but, 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 but figurative flames. Just a couple of weeks ago, when you watch on the news that... The Notre Dame Cathedral is in flames, just engulfed. And my sympathy doesn't extend toward that um, in regard to it being a Catholic building, but I have sympathy toward that because of it being a historical building. A beautiful, what, eight centuries old building that that theologians and people that we would respect through through the annals of time had seen much of that building that was there those centuries ago. And so you're sitting there watching the news and and you're seeing that big, beautiful, old building in flames and it's almost stomach-churning. You think of all that building had seen and yet there it was in flames. Still beautiful, but in flames. The beauty has been marred. Which I think helps us understand a little bit what the Garden of Eden looked like in these moments. It was still beautiful. Adam and Eve were still beautiful. The animals and the trees, everything that God had created was still beautiful. 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 
but it was engulfed in figurative flames. And this morning I want to continue to reflect on the marred beauty of Genesis 3. And then I want to pop over to Romans chapter 5, where Paul helps us understand more of this impact. But do you remember the first two pieces of impact? Do you remember in the last sermon in Genesis where we looked, where Adam and Eve, what they had immediately felt upon sinning, that they had felt two things, shame and fear. Look at Genesis 3 and verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So immediately their eyes are opened. It's as though the the scales fall off of their eyes. Despite being husband and wife, despite being the only two people on the entire planet, they felt shame. They knew that they were naked. So they immediately run over to the, the fig tree, I guess, and they're pulling these leaves off, and they begin sewing them and fashioning clothes for themselves, which gives us a hint, doesn't it? That they knew that they needed a covering. Upon their sin, they feel the shame and they know somehow I need to be covered. I need something to to fix my problem. And maybe this covering would help. One of the interesting things that one of the men said at the Good Friday service, he mentioned this really briefly. I thought he had a great insight when he said that they sewed fig leaves together. But the problem was is that the fig leaves didn't bleed. The fig leaves needed to bleed. There needed to be blood. Blood needed to be shed in order to actually cover them, didn't it? But they didn't have that. The second thing they felt, though, that they had never felt before, was fear. They hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Something that must have been beautiful for them to hear at once. And now, it isn't beautiful to hear. They knew that their relationship with God had been fractured. They had transgressed the covenant. They had disobeyed. They hid themselves. They're afraid. And again, this was something that they're experiencing for the first time. And so you can imagine Adam and Eve off to the side, clothed with these makeshift clothes, afraid, hiding in the bushes away from God. But there are also two other pieces that I want to look at this morning in our Genesis passage. And that's sin, which is obvious, and then death. The idea of sin begins in develops, begins developing in Genesis 3, doesn't it? That the snake comes to the woman, and what's he saying to her? He says, did God really say? So he's questioning God on one side, but then on the other side, he's testing Eve, isn't he? He's testing Eve to know, to to see if she knows what God actually said. Did God really say? And So then Eve responds, but then the serpent tells her that the reason God doesn't actually want her to touch the tree is because then, as soon as Eve eats the fruit, then she'll become like God and she'll know the difference between good and evil. So did God really say? She had an understanding, Eve did, of good. I mean, Eve lived in the good. She was created good all throughout Genesis 1, right? God created and it was good. God created and it was good. Over and over and over. Eve only understood good. She did not understand what Satan indicates that she didn't understand. She didn't understand evil. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a spoiler. And look at Genesis 3 and verse 22. 
Look what God says. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. The Lord, he makes this concession. He concedes that man had become like God in the fact that now he knew the difference between good and evil. And don't all of you know the difference between good and evil? So you, you know the difference between good and evil. Why? Because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. So you know the different sides. And the Lord concedes that man had now become like God. And Satan knew that if he could get Eve to bite the fruit, who would then turn to her husband and get him to bite the fruit, if he knew if he, that he could get this to happen, he could get them to know the difference between good and evil. But the question is, how did Satan know this? Because Satan had once been good. And Satan had fallen. And now he knew the difference between good and evil. And now he's turning to the man and the woman and getting them to understand the difference between good and evil. So sin, evil, all that it brings is a result of the fall. But what is the great result of even that? What comes from sin? Look at Genesis. Flip back a chapter and look at Genesis 2 with me. I just want to look at these couple of verses. Genesis 2 and verses 16 and 17 say this. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God says, you will die if you eat from that tree. In our Genesis 3 passage, Satan comes to Eve. Eve says, oh, we can't touch that tree, which really isn't true. The, the rule was from God, we can't eat the tree. That's what's true. And then she acknowledges, God says that if we do this, we're going to die. And the first response from the devil, you will not die. Here again, I don't think, just like Eve didn't have much of a clue about sin, Eve doesn't have much of a clue about death. She hadn't ever experienced death. She had never seen her mom pass away. She had never seen her dad pass away. She had never seen a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex come and bite the head off a cow. She, she had never seen any kind of death. But upon her husband eating that fruit, sin and death specifically would enter into the world. Which brings us to a really important passage in Romans chapter 5. And I want you to turn over there. And we're going to look at this, these verses, spend the bulk of our time in Romans 5 this morning. In this passage that Matt read for us, I had a, a professor one time that he was quoting somebody else that had said for the Christian, when they take their Bible and they lay it on its spine and then they open it, it should pop open to Romans chapter 5. This is an extremely important chapter for us to understand. But if we're going to understand Romans 5, we have to understand something that can be very confusing to modern readers like us. Modern Bible readers. And that is the subject of federal headship. So if you're a note taker, that's something to write down. Federal headship. So don't want to lose you. Tune in. I want to illustrate this in a very simple way so that we can all grapple with this very easily. And I'm going to use a Bible illustration that all of you are well acquainted with. So you remember the story of David and Goliath? 1 Samuel 17, you have David against Goliath. 
And the Israelites and the Philistines, they're doing battle with each other, right? These two great oppositions, the Israelites and the Philistines, seems like they're always going at each other. And they're at a standstill, aren't they? And the great giant Goliath, he's like 10 feet tall or whatever. And so he comes out and he's saying all kinds of things. He's defying the armies of the living God, right? That's how it's described. He's defying God. He's taunting the Jews. And so he tells the Jews, Goliath tells the Jews, hey, just send somebody out to fight me, right? We won't have a big battle between us, the Jews and the Philistines. Just send one man out and we'll fight each other. And whoever wins that duel, then we'll serve the other. So Goliath him, himself, he would say, well, if I lose, then the Philistines are going to serve you. And if your man wins, or excuse me, if your man wins, then it'll be the opposite. And so this is how this is all unraveling. The winner wins the battle for everyone. So Goliath is acting on behalf of all the Philistines, and whoever it would be, eventually David, acts on the behalf of all of the Israelites. And this is federal headship. That one man is acting on behalf of thousands. Or one man is acting on behalf of millions or billions. And this happens even within our own homes, does it? We have headship within the homes. And that where the head turns, that's where the whole body of the family goes. This is headship. And this is the concept that is found in Romans chapter 5. Where Paul explains that Adam was acting on behalf of the entire human race. So that first Adam, that first man, wherever he turns, is going to be the direction of the entire human race. And so when Adam falls into sin, as our federal head, his action is imputed to us. It's given to us. So his guilt, his shame, his fear, his death, his sin, all of that is given to his posterity. We share in that with him. As one author said, all of mankind was in Adam's loins. And as the first man, we were all in Adam's loins. He is our first parent. We all descended from him. He acted on our behalf. And there are often two responses to this. Because we don't like this, do we? We don't like somebody else acting on our behalf. And so there are generally two responses. The first one is, that's not fair. That's not fair that somebody is acting on my behalf. And the second one, very often, is... Well, I would, have, I would have done differently. I wouldn't have done what Adam did. I wouldn't have done what Eve did. I would have done something different. Right? So we think that's unfair. That nobody speaks for me. Nobody acts for me. Nobody does anything without my permission. But the Bible says it is clear. That active, Adam acted on your behalf. He acted on my behalf. Paul is clear. But then when we think that we would have done differently... Well, if I was in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have listened to the snake. Yeah, we would have. So we'll just clear that up. We all would have done the same thing. But there's good news. Because on the other side, Jesus acts on behalf of a whole bunch of people. So Adam acts on behalf of a bunch of people. And Jesus acts on behalf of a bunch of people. Which I'll unfold a little more later. But this is the concept of federal headship. But look with me at Romans chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those 
whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So remember that we're reckoning with sin and death. How these two tragedies got into the world. The impact that is felt through death and tragedy as a result of Adam's fall. And in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, we get Paul's immediate comments regarding the entering of sin into the world. What does he say in verse 12? That just as through one man, sin enters the world. This is, who's, this is how sin comes into the world. It comes in through a man. Paul recognizes what we've been seeing all along. That sin came into the world, not by the snake, not by Eve. Ultimately, it was by the headship of Adam, through, edge, through, through him. This is a reality for Paul, that Adam was the head, and so all of this falls on his shoulders. So sin is in the world, and Adam is the culprit of it all. Within these verses, in Romans, we see the words sin and offense. And Paul is quick to attach and add the results of sins and offenses. Judgment. Condemnation. Basically a couple of the worst fears that our culture has right now. Dreadfully afraid of being judged. Dreadfully afraid of being condemned. But that is where sin has brought us. It has brought us under its power as the result of Adam. And because of that fact that we are sinners... We are worthy of judgment and condemnation. But do you notice what Paul closely ties sin to? Death. So sin leads to death. Why do we die? Because of sin. This is brought together very closely in Romans 6.23, isn't it? For the wages of sin is death. And so I don't know, maybe the devil wasn't really lying when he said, you, and, you Adam and Eve, will not surely die. Because ultimately it was a whole lot more than that, wasn't it? It, would, it wouldn't just be Adam and Eve who would die. Everybody would die. Do you see how pregnant these moments are for Adam as he disobeys in an epic way? That in this one transgression, the death of billions and billions and billions of people was going to come about. And not just the death of a billions and billions and billions of people, but the death of God's one and only Son, was going to happen as a result of all of this. And so for the wages of sin is death. And just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. The Bible says in Ezekiel, the soul that sins, it shall die. Or the book of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die. Why? Because of sin. As you know, we're expecting a baby boy at the end of June. At the, and, and, and we don't know much about this kid. <laughs> you don't know very much about him. You can see some pictures, but you don't know much about your baby before it's born. But thanks to the way genetics work, since Bethany and I both have blue eyes, just like Nora and Laurel, the boy will have blue eyes. So we know that about him. We know that he has an X and a Y chromosome. It was a male, so we know that about him. So they, basically, that's all that we know about him. It's going to be a boy with blue eyes. Great. But then there are a couple other things that we know about him. We know that he's going to be a sinner. And we know that he's going to die. Hopefully not soon, but someday. He will die. Friends, this is an experience that is shared by all of us. That even when you're going to have a child, you already know those two things about them. They're going to be a sinner. 
and they're going to die. And on the sin side, we can get past the, the, the funny joke, oh yeah, of course it's going to be a sinner because look who his dad is. Like, that can be funny. But ultimately, when we think about this subject of headship, Adam, it's as though Adam is right above my baby boy. It, it's not the string. It, it's not because generation after generation after generation, I'm a sinner because my dad's a sinner. It's more so I'm a sinner because Adam's a sinner. Just like I'm not righteous because my dad is righteous. I'm righteous because Jesus is righteous. And that's right over me. I'm right in Jesus as a result of what he has done. So when we think about this headship thing, it's as though it's the head right above us. Adam is like lording over everybody. But on the good side, it's as Jesus is lording right over us. But these are the two shared experiences that every human has along with being born and eating and sleeping. And we're all sinners and we're going to die. And you might be wondering why I'm laboring on this. Sounding repetitive. Because our culture doesn't like to talk about these things. That when we start talking about death, we start, well, well, that's morbid. We don't like to think about it. It's uncouth. But Paul has no problem addressing this. And friends, it needs to be addressed. You have got to reckon with your own mortality. I think we've been inoculated because of the hospitals and the doctors that we all have in the day and age we live, we all expect to get to a certain amount of years, don't we? We all think that we're going to get there, but we are not promised that. We are not promised tomorrow. We have got to reckon with the fact that we are going to die. And for some of us, it could be this week. It could be this month. We are all going to die. That death comes to all of us, and it's because of sin. Now think of the hopelessness of that. What if I stopped the sermon right there and we all went home? I'm going to die, right? The hopelessness for billions of people in the world who think and they have no idea what to do with their fear and their shame and the sin and the death that they know is looming. To not know what to do with all of that. But so far I've only emphasized one side of these verses in Romans 5. That there is sin, it's here because of Adam, there is death, and death is here because of Adam. But death is not natural to man. Death is actually unnatural to us. It wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. Death is an enemy. Death is something that has to be defeated. And this is where, very obviously, Jesus steps into the picture. So if death is unnatural, it's not something we're supposed to experience. If death is an enemy, it's something that we actually are supposed to kill. Then what's going to kill that thing? What's going to kill death? Jesus is going to do it. Didn't we celebrate that last week on Easter? That up from the grave he arose. And what's he do? He tramples over death with that, doesn't he? He defeats death. He actually pulls the sting of death away from death. So that when we die, it is not death to die. It's actually to go and be with him. That to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. Isn't that where you want to be? You can have the security of that by trusting in the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf. If you're not trusting in the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf, you're not going to be with Jesus. You need to trust Him. So just as Adam acted as our federal head, he was the one by which all the curse and shame and fear and sin and death comes to us. So with Jesus comes the defeat and the conquering of our shame and our fear and our sin and even death. So that when Jesus steps onto the scene, we begin to have hope that all of the bad things that the fall brought upon us 
are beginning to be reversed in Jesus. So that when you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus working and you see Jesus taking care of all of those who have been affected by the fall. Remember when the man calls out and says, Son of David, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or or just say the word Jesus and my servant will be healed. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus forgives sinners. Jesus heals the lame and the blind. Jesus heals any issues that come across his path, like leprosy. Or he drives out demons from people. And Jesus even raises the dead. How? Why? Because he's reversing the curse. All of those things were being experienced by people and all the frailties and issues that you're experiencing right now and the fact that you're going to die, your health issues, whatever's going on, all of that is being unraveled by Jesus within the Gospels. And so that one day, all of that will fully and finally be gone, right? That none of that's going to be experienced by any of you for eternity. That once you go and be with the Lord and we have receive our glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth, like all of that is gone. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful hope. Isn't that wonderful to know that all your aches and pains, gone. All the friction within your relationships, gone. Everything that you're encumbered by with the fall is going to be gone. And so Jesus is going on a full-on attack against the curse. Everything that Satan and his forces had worked for, with the spread of sin and sickness and death, Jesus of Nazareth is just confronting it in a fury. Jesus is undoing all the terrible problems that Adam has brought us under. He has brought us hope. He has brought us life. He's bringing us eternity. And he's going to bring us back to the garden. He's going to bring us back to perfection. The Heidelberg Catechism is a a great Christian document that asks a, a question and answer. It's a catechism, so it's questions and answers. And it asks this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer goes like this. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on. To live for him. I am not my own. But to whom do I belong? I belong to Jesus. In my life and my death. That it's Jesus who gives me comfort. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die. So in Christ all will be made alive. Adam by his sin brought death. But Christ by his death brought life. And so the failure of Genesis chapter 3 is overcoming victory by Jesus. So that all that Jesus has bought and won can be given to you and me. We've been talking about this in Sunday school the last few weeks. That the righteousness of Jesus will be imputed to you. Unlike, instead of, the unrighteousness of Adam being imputed to us. We have the righteousness of Jesus given In verses 15 to 17, we see the words free gift used five different times. And although this is a a free gift, the gift itself was not free. It cost Jesus everything. It cost Jesus his life. And friends, I wonder if you've genuinely trusted and believed in Jesus. That you believe him to be the perfect sinless son of God. 
and that his righteousness has been imputed to you, given to you for the forgiveness of your sins. We had talked early on in our Genesis series about how from Adam came all race, all, all ethnic groups. So we really is only one race, it's Adam's race, and from that race come all ethnicities. But there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in Adam, and there, who, there are those who are in Christ. Those are the only two kinds of people in the world. That those who remain in Adam will die. They will not have victory over sin. The sting of death is not taken away. It will be sore. And they will be in hell for all of eternity. Apart from Jesus. But then those who are in Christ. (coughs) That they share in that victory. That Christ has won. That they have victory over sin. Their sins are forgiven. And they'll experience eternity with Jesus forever. So have you trusted in this Christ? Have you believed in him? Is he your only comfort in life and in death? This is really so mysterious, isn't it? That although in Adam we die... And death has come because of him. That life comes to us because of Jesus. And sometimes it's hard for me to think about that. That that Jesus died 2,000 years ago and somehow all that he had done has been applied to me. Like how does that work? I, I can't really grapple with that because I don't have something signed by God saying, this has been applied to you, signed God. Right? You just know that it happened. You have faith that it happened. And it's hard to grapple with. But it's not hard to grapple with the fact that Adam's sin has been imputed to us. So why is it so hard to think of Jesus' righteousness being imputed to us? These are the two great impacts of the fall. Sin and death. And I want to get to the point with all of us, little by little, through the process we call sanctification, that God is rooting sin out of our lives. And then in death, He has taken away its sting. That we can say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.